invite you to open your Bibles and to focus on the Word of God with me, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, and 15. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, and 15. The title for sermon, Every Member is a Minister. Every Member is a Minister. And as you open up, if you remember last time we were in the 1 Thessalonians, we were studying verses 12 to 13 where Paul describes how to have peace in the church. And the most efficient way to have peace in the church to understand your priorities and your responsibilities, who are the shepherds and who are the sheep and what are we to do. And it might seem that from verse 12 to 13 that the only responsibility of the sheep and of the members of the church is to esteem and to honor the shepherds. But that's not so. You will find that there are far more relies on the shepherding of the flock, relies on, it relies on the sheep, sheep themselves. So as you open this, let's read verses 14 to 15, and let's pray, and let's dive in. It says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Bow down with me. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would teach us from this word and change our perspective on our duties and responsibilities. I pray that you would give us a proper attitude as we minister to one another. Help us in this endeavor. We pray, we depend on you. In Christ's name, amen. As you notice, if you've been in the church for quite a, some time, that the church is not a place where perfect people resign. In fact, if you expect the church to be a place where perfect people all around you, you'll be disappointed. The only perfect person, the only the perfect person, is not, is not you. It's Jesus Christ. It's the only perfect in the church. The rest of us need a lot of help, need a lot of support. The church's organism where people understand that they need help and they lack a lot of things. And in order to have a strong and a healthy church, progressive church, is to work hard dealing with our problems and dealing with our sin. One person said, he said, the church is the only place on earth where the members understand that they don't have any right in themselves to get their membership. We understand that we're here not because we're great or we're strong or we're mature. We're here because we're graced. We've been graced by God. And when we say that the church is full of saved people, we understand that they saved people that were saved from sin and they're dealing with sin. They are in the process of transformation. We do have the Spirit of God. We do have the Holy Spirit in us, but we also have a lot of problems. And in order to move the church to a better place, we have to deal with sin in the church. We have to deal with our own issues. And the only reason we will move forward in building this local church to be strong, healthy, holy, more loving, and kind is by addressing our problems and our sins in a biblical manner. Now, 
We understand that. I hope we do. I hope we do that, understand that the body needs to recover. The body needs the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, as that is why we're preaching the Word of God. That's why we're dealing with our sins. That's why we, devote, we have devotion every morning and so on. We deal with our problems. We don't ignore them. We address them. We do have understanding that we need help from God. Now, how do we do that? How do we move to a better place? Now, one way is to ignore all the problems and say, well, just we'll, we'll sing and worship and come on Sunday morning and everything's good. It's a me and Jesus time and we go and have our life. Another way is to start ministering to one another. And this is exactly what this text is saying. The text is saying that every church member is a minister. Every church member is a shepherd. Now, we have a distinction that there's a place for the shepherds in our congregation, pastors, elders, overseers, and so on. And immediately when I ask you, who should shepherd the flock? Immediately, you probably think that it's the job of the professionals, the job of those who has been studying the Word of God, those who went to seminary, those who learned how to do so, but it is not so. This text does not give us this leisure, that this is job of the professionals. This is just the job of the pastors. It says that every one of us should have this job. How do we know that? Because Paul starts verse 14 with verse, uh, words, we urge you, brethren. We urge you, brethren. You see this word? Brethren doesn't mean that pastors. We immediately put in our minds that this is a pastoral work. No, but he said, we urge you, brethren. And in this scripture, brethren always embraces all the Christians. It's not just the pastors, and it's not just man. It's brethren and sisters, if you will. Everyone in the church, those who have been saved, he said, now, this is what your duty flock is. You have to minister to one another, and you have to shepherd one another. I like how Lansky said, he's correcting the faults in members is the duty of the whole congregation. The elders would certainly also do their part. The responsibility of assisting the brethren falls on the shoulders of every Christian, not just upon the limited few. Now, if we embrace this attitude and say, well, this is my job to be a shepherd, it's not just the professionals, the things would start changing in our congregation. You would start noticing people with problems. You start noticing people who are weak. You start noticing people who need some courage, and you take care of them. You just don't send them to the pastors to do their work. That's how we create the professionals. And I understand we've been trained in this world to go to the professionals all the time. When I need surgery on my shoulder, I don't want perhaps Mike to do this, right? I want his surgeon to do that for him. I don't want a student, you see, Davies to practice on me. I want a professional. When I go to fly somewhere, I don't want to a pilot be my surgeon. I want pilot who has a pilot school and has experience. I don't want you to, to drive this plane. And so I, we understand that. But when we come to the church, we also have this idea that these are the job of the professionals. And this is where it breaks down. The job of the professionals to train you to do the job. That's what it means equipping the saints. Pastors should equip the saints to do the same job. And that's why Paul is saying here, we urge you, brethren, 
The very first Greek word that you learn in your Greek class would be probably adolfoi, adolfos, right? This is the, the brother, or this is the brother. And the word is compound. I don't know if you know this. This is the word from A denoting unity or delphos meaning womb. It means that these people are from the same womb. They have a close connection. We have a close connection to one another. We should be closely intact, intact with one another. We should watch one another as a flock. We should not just rely on professionals. In other words, you should be your brother, brother's keeper. Remember Cain, when he answered to God, when God said, where is your brother Abel? And he said, what am I, my brother's keeper? Well, you are. We should watch for one another. And this is, a, this is going to be more powerful Dealing with our personal issues, helping one another when we rely, not just on professionals, but we take the job and do it. I like how John Piper said in his book, Brothers Who Are Not Professionals, he makes this point that most of our even professional job, of those who went to seminary, those who study how to exegete, and that is, should be done. You should go to study and in, in, to school and to do that. But he said, most of your job as a shepherd is not just that. He said, is there a professional praying? Professional trusting in God's promises? Professional weeping over souls? Professional rejoicing in truth? Professional praising God's name? Professional treasuring, treasuring the riches of Christ? Professional walking by the Spirit, professional exercise of spiritual gifts, professional dealings with demons, professional deal pleading with the backsliders, professional preservance in heart marriage, professional play with children, professional courage in the face of persecution, professional patience with everyone. This is just a regular Christian life that we help with one to do it with one another. And he said, when I look back, my regret is not that I wasn't more professional, but that I wasn't more prayerful, more passionate for souls, more consistent with personal witnesses, more emotionally engaged with my children, more tender with my wife, more spontaneously affirming of the good in others. These are my regrets. So I call you with Paul today, we urge you, brethren, to accept the calling. You as a sheep, you have to shepherd the sheep. And this you cannot learn in seminary. I give you, I tell you from my own experience, seminary do not teach you how to shepherd the flock. They can't. They could teach you how to exegete the scripture, and that's what they should do. They try to teach you from the books, but how the shepherd knows how to shepherd the flock. I haven't seen the shepherding PhD. I haven't seen, like, if, if a real shepherd wants to go on the field and learn how to shepherd the flock, he doesn't go to the universities. He doesn't. He doesn't go to read the books. What he does, he goes to the field with the flock and lives with them, and he learns. And so we have this privilege. We have the church. We have one another. And God is calling you. I urge you, brethren, everyone, shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. Now, I want to give you two points from this passage. Number one, shepherding people with problem. Who are these people? And then shepherding people with problem with proper attitude. How do we do it? Who are these people that we need to watch out and shepherd? And who and how do we do it? 
So as we come in, Paul says, and he identified, identified verse 14, three groups of people. And he said, there are people who are unruly. You see that? Those who are, need some admonishing. There's people who are faint-hearted, and there's people who are weak. I call them disorderly, dispirited, independent. Disorderly, dispirited, independent. These are three groups of people, but I want you to think about these group of people, not just the like, categories of people that these are disorderly, these are disheartened. These are people, these are us, that sometimes in your life you might fall in this category because this is the season in your life. Sometimes you would feel, or you, or someone would come and say, well, you act like unruly. Sometimes you are so weak. Sometimes you're so discouraged. And we need one another to come alongside and to put some sense in our minds and to encourage us to do what God wants us to do. We're all varying in giftedness and spiritual abilities, but spiritual abilities and giftedness has nothing to do with the shepherding. It's almost nothing to do if you're good at singing, if you're good at preaching, it doesn't matter. You still have to shepherd the flock. You still have to watch for your people. It doesn't matter what your spiritual ability or your giftedness is. You can't just check out doing your ministry with your spiritual gift and then drop the congregation. Here's Paul presents three people. Number one, disorderly. Who are these people? All these people, Paul says that they are out of step. He identifies the unruly, those who are out of order. Unruly was used in a military context when everybody marching in one foot and some people just out of march. They, they just don't march with, march with, one, with everyone. They just freelancer, they, they freelander, they do whatever they want. They're independent mind. He's getting up when he wants to, he marches as he pleases, he fights when he what is convenient. That's not a soldier. That soldier needs some kind of admonishing. So, well, you put, you, you go back in a line. That soldier could call rebellion. You have seen people at the gym who don't want to follow any programs. They do whatever they want, you know. They never get anywhere. They come as they go. No one tells them what to do because they won't tolerate anyone. These people are never with the program always disagrees on the minor, mostly critics who are never committed, but sitting on the fences. And Bible calls them specifically in this context, Paul has in mind those who are not so much of disorderly and just disrupt everything, but those who are lazy. In fact, Paul is in chapter 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, he identifies them. He said, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads the unruly life, and not according to the tradition which, I, which you received from us. There are people in Thessalonian church, they were, didn't want to work. Everybody's working, everybody's ministering to one another, and they just sit. They were free, free loafers. They will just suck in from the congregation everything they can and never given anything in return. They're not in order, they're not in good order, they just walk in by their own standards. And that type of people, Paul says, they are unruly, they're rebellious, and they're a problem in the congregation. And most of the unruly people, they don't think they're unruly. They think they're fine. They don't need any admonition. They think that everybody else needs admonition, but not them. But Paul says, look, when you see people that are out of line, and we're not talking about church programs, 
If church decides to read through devotionals or through some books and you are not doing that, that doesn't mean that you're rebellious. That doesn't mean so. But if you are out of step with the word of God and people notice in that, and they could tell you as brothers and sisters, look, get back in line. Go back to the word of God. Don't be rebellious. Don't be unruly. What is the solution for those people? And Paul says, admonish, admonish. How to deal with the disorderly people in the church? How do we deal with them? We ignore them. We want them to leave. We want them to disappear. No, we want them to change. We want them to change. Disorderly people needs to come back into order. It's not to be rude with them. It's not to hurt them. It's to bring them back in the flock. And Paul has revealed biblical principles that often overlooked and neglected in our days. We don't like to admonish people. We don't like to put sense in their minds. We don't like it because it hurts. We might be rejected. But the church is obligated to warn, to warn. It's like this alarm that's went on. If there would be a fire, we would wish that it would ring. We would wish so, right? We want to do that. We do this with our children, don't we? When we see them going astray and they are doing unruly stuff and disrupting and lazy, we want to admonish them and say, well, son, get up. Don't be like this door in the hinges going from right to left. You're going to end up in rebellion. We want you to come to the obedience to the word of God. The word nuthetheo, meaning the admonish, the unruly put in the sense in their minds. In 1970s, J. Adams started a biblical counseling with or originally was called neuthetic counseling. That meaning you're changing your mind counseling. From word admonition, the whole concept of biblical counseling is to admonish in the word of God those who are gone astray from the way of the Lord. That's all the counseling is. We come and bring sense, scripture into their minds and say, well, don't be the unruly. That was the whole point of Paul's ministry. He said, Paul has this agenda in the ministry in Colossians 1.28. He said, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So when we admonish the unruly, the goal is to bring them back. That should be the attitude. We should be the watchmen. We should be the brother's keeper. We should not ignore people when they're going astray or getting lost somewhere or they just voice some opinions that doesn't match, match the scripture. We should admonish them. That's our job. It's not job, just job of the pastor. It is your job. Sheep to sheep. Admonition and the power of the Holy Spirit is a ministry of each member of the body, calling the rebels to submit to the calling of Christ to be useful in the church. Sometimes people sit in the church for 10, 15, 20 years and they do nothing. They just take it, never give. If you see those people come to them and say, well, you actually an unruly. When I say anything, you might not disrupt the services, but because you don't give anything back to the congregation and you don't be part of the body with your gifts, you're rubbing the congregation and you are unruly. Now, in Thessalonians church, there were many reasons to kind of check out. I mean, people use the misunderstanding of the second comment. They worry about the day of the Lord. 
They lost their motivation. They thought that they missed the boat of the rapture. And now they don't have to work. They just sit and just wait because the destruction is going to come on us. And that's it. There's no point of working. And Paul is addressing later on in Second Thessalonians that that's not so. And if those people are just sitting and do nothing, they'll just eat, sleep, for tomorrow will die anyway, you admonish them. Get back in line. So first group that we could see, first state of the heart, of our heart is often to be lazy, unruly, and therefore disruptive. And we need a congregation to tell us, to tell us. If you see your wife doing the same thing, you would tell her, right? But we don't do it because we're afraid to lose relationship. We're not afraid to be, to disobey the word of God, but we're afraid to lose relationship. I'm talking about myself. A husband can say, for instance, uh, if I admonish my wife, she would give me a silent treatment for seven days. I don't want that. I'm just going to avoid the issue. A wife could say, if I would just bring the financial problem to my husband, he'll just explode. So I just avoid that. We don't do that because we think that we will be losing relationship. But Paul says, in order to build relationship, in order to build up relationship, you have to address the issues. You have to address the sin. You do it with a gentle, kind spirit, but you cannot avoid to tell people of their problems. We hope that problems will go away, but problems never just go away. People go away, not problems. Brothers and sisters, it is our job to, talk, to help those who are unruly. It is your job. The group number two, Paul says, that encourage the faint-hearted, and I call them the spirited. They remind me of this Eeyore from the Vinnie de Pooh. Too many examples from Vinnie de Pooh. I watched when I was little, too, too many cartoons. But he is very sad individual. He always losing something, never happy. It's almost hard to cheer him up. These are the dispirited people. And sometimes you find yourself in this category, faint-hearted. The word for faint-hearted in Greek, it's basically small soul. That you have a very small condensed soul that doesn't have courage. It's lacking of every courage. Soul, Small-souled members. We're talking about people who lost heart. They lost courage to live on Christian life. They lost courage to live and to minister to others. They are dispirited. This is the person who feels that his soul doesn't have any more courage to go on. He's deficient, discouraged, and often worried. And therefore, he's uncommitted, uninspired, broken in his heart. You know, Bible addressed this. Many good people in the Bible have the state. Many good people feel dispirited, crushed in their soul. And this is the serious problem for Christians. This is the serious problem for us. It's not that there's somewhere else, somewhere else, he is the, the spirit. We are often feel this way. David spoke in Psalm 42, 5, says, I am weary my, with my sign. Every night my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. How would he do so? Because he was dispirited. He had no courage to go on. Job said, my spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. My grave is ready for me. 
Have you had this moment in your life when you say, well, that's it, I'm ready to die, I can't go on. Elijah pleaded with the Lord, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And it's so interesting, the discouragement in Christian life often happens later in life. When you just become Christian, you are so vibrant, encouraging Christian who likes to learn the doctrine, who likes to preach the gospel. But then the life beats you up. And then later on in life, many people feel discouraged, unappreciated, lack of support from others, other people's success perhaps, discourage, discouragement in your slow progress in your ministry. Besides, many things could go wrong, health, financial problems, loss of a job, death of a loved ones, you name it. There's an opportunity for to be discouraged. Many, in many ways, some of the problems can cause the condition of your soul to be so down that you cannot get up. Your soul feels small, your spirit feels crushed, you need someone to comfort you, but no one is around. And you need sometimes just a simple encouragement of a person. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a pastor at that moment coming yelling at you the word of God. You don't need someone come and open the systematic theology and teach you the doctrines of election. You don't need a discussion about supra-serianism and, and demons and, and angelology. You need someone come and put your arm, his arm around you and sometimes just sit with you and say, I understand. I understand. And share maybe a word of God with you. You know, when you're discouraged, you might find yourself that you think that your ministry is useless. Do you think sometimes this way? You look back at your life and say, well, my ministry was useless. There's no point. It's all in vain. That's a sign of the discouragement. When you don't have sense of Christ in your heart that he's with you, you're discouraged. When you lose biblical view of God that he doesn't care, you're discouraged. How do you minister to those discouraged people? How do you do so? Well, you comfort them. The word here, it's a different word than we previously saw in chapter 4, encouraged. And in chapter 5, it, it is actually a word, comfort them. Comfort them. You know, we need to be discerning as we, as we shepherd in one another. We can't just use one verse at every instance, for every category. We have to recognize, where is this person? What does he need? In Isaiah 40, God said to Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. Comfort Jerusalem. For he, she has served her service, and she has paid double for her sins. Comfort. Comfort the faint-hearted those who have no spirit left in them, those who are crushed like crushed grapes. And this is the desire of God. When we do that, we reflect God's character. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, he says, God is looking for those who are 
low in spirit, but what he does, it says, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The word contrite means crushed in spirit, and God wants to restore it. What God wants us to do in congregation too, to look for those crushed people and to restore them with the word of God. Remind them that the gospel is worth living for. Take the word of God and show them that the ministry is not in vain. Show them again that God cares. Show them again that God placed them in the body and they're important. They're important people. The body needs them. They just can't leave like that. When a person helped them to realize that they have place in the body, the courage comes back. Encourage them to see the power of God that he's able to do through them as he was able to do through David, through Daniel, through Ezekiel, through John the Baptist. Joseph Bailey, who at the different times lost three sons in death, wrote this. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of, my, of why it happened of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I wasn't moved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and said beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just said beside me an hour and more, listening when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. We need congregation. We need one another to encourage us when we are so down. Do you see those discouraged people around you? What do you do? Ignore them? Talk to them about the weather? It's not going to help them? Perhaps you are talking about the Bible but not addressing their need at all. Or perhaps you're encouraging them to be discouraged by saying, you know what? I understand. This is exactly the problem. That's what I've been dealing with all my life. Or perhaps you could share some courage with that person saying, listen, I understand your frustration. At times I feel the same, but Christ is always the same. He does not change. Gospel is always the same. It does not change. Your position as Christ is always the same. It cannot change. And therefore, be encouraged. You're an important part. I want you to be encouraged that much that you would encourage others. That's how we grow the church. You know, Apostle Paul has all the reasons to be discouraged, all the reasons. When I'm discouraged, I just think about him. It's like, man, this guy, he has all the reasons to be discouraged, beaten too many times to count. Shipwrecked three times. How did you survive? Stoned to death, got up and went to preach. Angel, demon was hurting him constantly. Like, what is going on? How in the world do you encourage? And yet he says in 2 Corinthians 4.1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. What a courage. We need those people. And the third group, he says, help the weak, help the dependent. 
And this is the job of a congregation too. As we identify the weak, the dependent, literally means that they are sick. Those who are sick, spiritually sick. The one whose strength is gone because of some kind of disease. Literally without strength or bodily vigor. It's like when you cut the bug and you go to sleep, you wake up more tired than you went when you went. This is what the people are. They're so weak, they cannot handle their pressure. They cannot handle the temptation. They're constantly reverting to their sins. They're weak in their conscience. They're weak in sin. They cannot stand against the temptation. And Paul is addressing this third group of people that seem powerless to deal with their personal issues. These people are always struggle with temptations, struggle with life. Everything goes bad. They need constant support, and nothing seems to work. When you help those people and you come along these people, you constantly see them. There are needy people. They're dependent people. It's like your child who cannot cook for a long time. And you can't just drop him. They're constantly dependent. They're dependent on you reading scripture with them. They cannot do it on their own. They struggle on their sin. You help them to go through some, you know, put on, put off, and they revert to sin again. So people who are struggling with addiction, people struggling with pornography. And it seems like for it has been years, and you put so much energy, it's so much, so slow progress. Spurgeon once said about his students, he said, I observe four types of students. The first, the best student is the one who learns really quickly and forgets really, really slowly. The worst student is the one who learns very slowly, but then he forgets really quickly. It seems like those people are like that. You teach them, teach them, teach them, and the next morning they forgot everything that you taught them. How do you deal with them? Well, you drop them. No. It says here, help, help, keep on helping. What do you do with these people? You can't just rebuke them. You can't just say, hey, read this book and you'll be fine. You can't just say, try harder. Just get up. You need to go alongside. And the word help meaning that you put your shoulder under person. It's like if someone broke his leg. How would you help him to get up? You go under his arm and you lift him up and you give him support. That's what Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul is saying the same principle. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, if you see a person just cut like a bird in a cage, cannot get out, someone fall in a hole of sin and temptation, he cannot get out, you have compassion to come down and lift him up. It says, bear one another's burden and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Helping the weak requires energy and a lot of time. A lot of time. He or she is struggling to produce holiness, love, joy, peace. They're failing and falling into fleshly temptations. What do you do? You help them. And it's interesting that when we think about Good Samaritan story, we think that this is somewhere else in the Jericho Road or somewhere else in the world that people who need help, maybe, you know, you you drive and there's a guy who's asking for money. These are people that we need to help. But Paul is talking about the church. There are people weak in the church. Now look around. There are weak people. 
that you do not notice. Now you come here right now and you sit at your places, right? It's almost like the chairs are bought by you, right? There's, a, there's a, your name on it. I would encourage you to switch chairs. You would find some other people that you have never seen. Next morning, next Sunday morning, come and just sit at someone's chair. And he would come and say, bump into you. You have never noticed him, perhaps. I would encourage you to talk to people that you have not talked forever. You might find that people have needs. They might look good on Sunday morning, but they're struggling. You might find people that there's no passion for the Word of God. There's no passion. There's no desire to share any goodness. There's apathy and indifference on their face. And you go and help them. Ask them, how can I help? How can I encourage? The goal is of helping is not to be constant in eternal support, though. Like eternally supporting this person. I committed for the next 40 years to support you in your problem. No, it's just to lead them out. How long is it going to take, but you lead him out and make him mature and complete in Christ. That is our job. And that is your job. When we do other ministries, what do we do? We're serving people. We're serving people. We have to. And therefore, every member must be involved in a sensible shepherding of those who are in need. Sensible shepherding. Every member is a minister. The third Group requires a lot of time, so there are the one who is unruly, the one who are faint-hearted and also needy. But Paul is also addressing not who are those people, but also what attitude you should do and should have when you address them. Shepherding with the proper attitude is super, super important. And Paul addresses three attitudes, and we're going to go briefly through them. In verse 15, 14 and 15, it says, this is how do you, it's not a separate category, be patient with everyone. This is the how thing. This is how do we minister with what pro- a pro- proper attitude we minister to those people. And you lift them up and you do it with patience. And the first attitude that he mentions, he said, you do it with patience. When you experience a service when you're serving people and they don't respect you and, and they don't re- accept it, you'll be often discouraged. But Paul said, well, have patience. Have patience. Patience is a supernatural attitude produced by the Holy Spirit. Meaning, literally in this text, meaning that the long-suffering. Macros meaning long, too much anger. You wanted to get angry at people when they don't do what you want them to do for a long time. And you, you are bur- bursting up with anger. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Have patience. Restrain your anger. Listen, when you're in a ministry, in any kind of ministry, you will get prone to anger. But Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Be patient. Restrain your anger. James 1.20 reminds us that the anger of men does not achieve the righteousness of God. And if you serve people, not everyone would be nice to you, but you'd be patient with everyone. Not everybody will welcome your service, but you don't reject them. 
Don't shy away from them. Don't speak evil against them, but be patient. You know, when you say, I've got enough, that kind of shows that you have a short fuse and you're done. Like, I, I got enough of this. Maybe your wife told you sometimes, like, I, I've got enough. I'm, I'm done. Well, this is where the anger takes best of her or husband. We can't afford to do that. We can't just leave. We have to have patience with everyone. And he mentions this not only with those who are nice to you or those who are receptive but with everyone, with every of those categories, unruly, faint-hearted, and weak, have patience. There's no other ministries that we could build. There's no other way without patience. Patience with all, no exceptions, not just those who like you, but those who don't like you particularly. This is where you need patience. And going back to the gospel, it helps us. Because Colossians 3, 12, and 13 says, So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Patience. The next things he mentioned, the attitude, is that not only that you're patient with everyone, verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil. You know, when people doing evil to you, you, you just don't have, not enough to have patience. You have to forgive. You have to pardon. You have to pardon, and that way you're not getting angry anymore. Don't retaliate, he says. And if you put it in the context of Thessalonians, these people were struggling with persecution. You know, they might come one Sunday morning and they might not see some of the members because they were gone and they were executed. And they might be your relatives, your mom or your dad or your child. They were executed because they were stoned somewhere in the middle of the week. And when you go there, and you try to minister to those people the gospel, and they stone your people, there is retaliation, there's anger. You want to respond. You want to have vengeance. Or maybe in the church, try to help, but he's doing evil to you. But Paul says, and he following his command of the Lord, he says, don't retaliate. Don't pay back or give back what it's own. Yes, it deserves the punishment, but guess what? It is not your business. Stop playing God. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And Jesus teaches us in Sermon on the Mount. We have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Paul warns, see that, see to it, make sure you watch it, watch your soul, watch others, watch yourselves, watch your attitude that you are pardoned and not retaliate, pardon, make sure you don't pay evil for evil. The world says, just don't get mad, get even. God says, don't get mad, don't get evil, even. But pay back with goodness. 
That's how you pay back for evil. Now, this is extremely hard. This is like supernatural. This is out of the sky. This is out of heaven. I mean, who could do that when people do evil to you that you give good, that you're not discouraged, that you're not distressed, but you also pay them and pursue goodness. But that's what Paul says. The third attitude is pursue goodness. Always seek what is good for one another. And when Paul says, well, seek what is good, it's just not saying, well, just, you know, good, whatever, whatever good that is. When he says good, there is an active involved of seeking what is good for that person. Active involvement. And it means that we should not protect our rights so harshly, but we should seek what does that person need so we could serve him. We should not return evil for evil or insult for insult, as Peter said, but given a blessing instead. If you do not know what to do, you just utter the blessing to a person. So you know what? May God be gracious to you. And often, it just disarms people. Like, what? Why did you say that? This is the proper attitude in the ministry to people with problems. Who are the people with problems? Us. Who are the shepherds? Us. Where do we learn? From the scripture and on the field. We come here, rub shoulders with one another, and we do that. You know, it's interesting that Christians, if we don't do that, we'll be like this decaf coffee. Anybody likes decaf coffee? Somebody said it should be abomination. You know, what's the point of this coffee? It has the taste, but it has no kick. When I drink my coffee, I want a kick. I want to get it working in me. If we just Christians by name, what's good? If we just rely on the professionals, what's good? And we just spectators come and hear Sunday after Sunday and just soak it in, what's good? We should work with one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another. Do it with gentleness, kindness, but just don't dismiss one another. Paul says, do it with proper attitude. Be patient. Pardon people. Pursue what is good. Brothers and sisters, such shepherding is extremely hard, is impossible without the empowering spirit of God. It is impossible if you're not constantly in the Lord and in the word and say, well, this is where I soak my soul in. This is where I meditate. This is how he treated me. This is my great and good shepherd. This is how he treated me. When I was rebellion, he did not just leave me. He rebuked me. When I was disheartened, he just didn't leave me. He come and put his arm around me. And when I was weak, and when I am weak, he's still with me. Every member must be involved insensible shepherding of those who are in need. It's interesting. The last week I was just rereading some of the cards that have been given to me throughout the ministry. I have a big box like this. I always keep them. Every card. And I just reread. There's hundreds. How they encourage the soul. Simple words. 
do that to one another. Father, we pray the power of the Spirit would change our hearts and attitude toward one another. We're not spectators to one another. We're not just audience. We're not just sheep. We're shepherds. We're shepherding one another and help us to do it sensibly, understanding who and what position and what place are, so that we could bring the appropriate word of God as it needed for the moment. I pray that you would restore us, strengthen us, make this church stronger, more holy, more pure, more loving, more gentle, more serving. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.